You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. Before the American Indian Religious Freedom Act was signed by U.S. Congress in 1978, the indigenous peoples of America were prohibited by law to practice basic civil liberties. Liberties that included the right of freedom to believe, express and exercise ancient indigenous traditions, spiritual beliefs, and cultural practices. It was the early 70s and Kevin Locke was in his early 20s when he began to learn of his own Lakota Anishinaabe practices, but was forced to observe them in secret. Kevin was on a spiritual quest, fasting and praying in search of the Red Road, the path to God. At the time, Kevin was living on a reservation near Standing Rock, North Dakota, while on a secret spiritual quest when he first learned of the Baha'i faith. Today, Kevin has found a unique way of sharing his traditional and spiritual beliefs on the world stage. His work as a traditional hoop dancer, indigenous flute player, storyteller, recording artist, and educator is rooted in his traditional Lakota practices and spiritual beliefs as a member of the Baha'i faith. Kevin has devoted his life honoring his mother, Patricia Locke, and her legacy to empower Native communities and sharing the teachings of oneness and unity to audiences all over the world. Kevin continues to visit schools on and off the reserve in the hopes of keeping his Indigenous teachings and traditions alive in future generations. A book of his memoirs was just released by the Baha'i Publishing Trust called Arising and is available online for purchase. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on Cloud9. Oh, it's good to be on Cloud9. Thank you. So you've lived on the reservation for most of your life. And for those of our listeners who don't know what it means to live on a reservation, could you paint us a picture and perhaps some historical context on why reservations were first formed? Some people ask, well, what did, what did, um, what did the people call uh, America, United States, before you know white people or immigrants arrived? Well, we called it ours, O-U-R-S. So basically, you know, the, there was there was uh, 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 this whole continent at one time was inhabited by indigenous people, but then uh, immigrant populations came and, of course, uh, decided that they wanted to take those lands. So there was the indigenous people eventually began to um, uh, enter into treaty relationship with the United States government. And then certain lands were set aside, or as they say, reserved in exchange for, you know, the vast majority of lands. And so in English language, and then those, those, those reserved lands became known as reservations. In the United States and in Canada, of course, it's called uh, reserves. So you live on Standing Rock at the moment? Yes. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a home here, and, and um, it's, uh, I live in uh, Wakpala, which is one of the eight districts or communities on Standing Rock. And what does your life on Standing Rock look like today? Oh, today, uh, well, it's uh, just kind of a kind of a cloudy day here. On, Did you just on, walk outside? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I 
Well, I, I spent a lot of time outside. Yeah, I like it. It's really nice. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. You know, right on the confluence of the Missouri River and the Grand River, and it's it's really a scenic. It's really a beautiful uh, location. I feel very blessed to have a place here. Hasn't changed much over the years because you've been there for such a long time. You've probably seen it transition. Yeah, there has been a lot of changes. Interestingly, I think uh, a lot of people are aware of this uh, trend for the uh, you know like rural populations to to transition and become more urbanized. Interesting. So I know that Bahá'u'lláh once remarked that the country is the world of the soul and the city is the world of bodies. I'd be curious to learn about how Standing Rock has impacted your own soul. Oh, wow. I never thought of it from that particular perspective. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, uh, well, well, you know, in, in, the, in the writings of Baha'u'llah, you know, Baha'u'llah creates a sublime vision of uh, paradise and of reality. But, of course, um, the way it's done is that by invoking uh, elements from the phenomenal world, from the contingent world. And this is based on the principle everything in the world is a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. In other words, so that the physical world is not separate from spiritual worlds, but it's just that everything in this physical world is a counterpart to something in the spiritual world. So in other words, all the worlds of God are one. So the same uh, principles and you know underlying underlying uh, uh, principles are operative throughout those the worlds, and so that if a person wants to really understand maybe a, a spiritual mystery, then they'll they'll examine it, its counterpart in the in the physical world. So in other words, um, I think this is the point that was um, lost on many immigrant populations who first came to North America, and that you know they observed indigenous people and and then they thought well well these people they're you know they're savage or they're pagan because they said well they're worshiping that mountain or maybe that eagle or maybe that tree or whatever it is but it's not that at all it's simply that you know the mountain is just emblematic or symbolic of a, a spiritual reality maybe majesty let's just say or maybe that eagle is is representational of, of a of a of a spiritual principle, let's say, let's say nobility, let's say the nobility of the human spirit or the ascendant nature of the human spirit. What's interesting is today you're able to freely share your spiritual beliefs so openly. Um, we'll expand more on this later on, but this wasn't always the case. And I understand that your spiritual journey began in a time where you were banned from observing your indigenous beliefs and spiritual practices. So could you just paint a picture and and share what these political and social conditions looked like in your 20s, those restrictions that were placed on you? Well, this is something that was, uh, you know, like the uh, indigenous uh, devotional practices were were uh, were strictly outlawed and banned, uh, not just in the U.S., but, you know, in Canada as well. And so they were also enforced. You know, one time I was up in uh, Manitoba and... Uh, they had a um, uh, they had a uh, what they call a rain dance over there, and um, so then I asked them, uh, "Well, how did you get this this word rain dance? I thought it was supposed to be a sun dance." And so the, my friend said, "Well, you know they they did, uh, you know I guess they would have called it a, a sun dance, but in Canada, you know the um, 
the government banned the Sundance. So then they, they, they discontinued doing that. But then when the Mounties or RCMP or whoever it was came by, came to enforce that ban, then whoever was they were talking to, they said, well, well, no, no. So this, the, they, uh, the Mounties came by, well, I understand you're having a Sundance here. And then the person said, no, 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 this is a rain dance. It's a rain dance. The Mountie looked and said, hmm, well, it's drought. We need the rain. Okay, carry on. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, it's just, it was just a, uh, it, it was just a, uh, something that was outlawed across the board. And then it was, uh, I think what happened over time was that uh, people began to adopt what you would might call, I guess the nowadays, they, they like a, a colonized mindset. And so they began to um, empathize or somehow adopt some of the thought patterns of the colonizers or the immigrant population. And so I think this, this continued, uh, and it's still very prevalent today, but it just resulted in, uh, in, in not, not just the immigrant population, but in, even internally, uh, you know, people uh, of indigenous heritage, you know, just accepting the fact that all of these things are, 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 are not right and need, or many of them are not right and need to be, uh, uh, need to, need to be forsaken or given up. So that was kind of just to get back to your question that I think that was kind of like the prevailing mindset when I first took an interest in, in, uh, the, uh, um, indigenous spiritual heritage of this area. Right. So, so you kind of just touched on it, but could you share what your own spiritual journey looked like? under these types of conditions? I, I had this real uh, overarching goal or ambition of trying to find, you know, find reality, find some kind of a spiritual reality. And so that when I would ask people like in the community here about that, you know, about what the spirituality or this quest might be like, then the response that I, I got was that, you know, you can't really get that directly from from people per se, but you it's like a, something you have to pursue and, you know, ask God for the answers. And so the, the, the way that this has been done throughout time here in North America is through the law of fasting, which is very, very foundational. I think it's really all over the world. As you know, uh, Baha'u'llah renewed the law of fasting and made it accessible to everybody. It's a very lenient law. But uh, the the law of fasting throughout time here in North America, you know, has been very, it's a very stringent, very demanding law where a person will go out into a wilderness area and fast, you know, up to four days and four nights or maybe more without food or water. And so um, this was the advice that I got was to do that. So that's what I started doing back in the early 70s and uh, continued for, you know, for many years. And I, I still do that. I, I still do that uh, occasionally now. I really enjoy that practice. Interesting. So how did you discover the Baha'i faith while you were on the spiritual search? I, at, some, at some point after I started doing that, I did meet some Baha'is here. They were living here at Standing Rock uh, um, at, at, a, at a different community from where I'm at now, but close by. And, uh, and they were the ones that really began to take me under their wing and share with me information about the, about the Baha'i faith. And, um, um, I, you know, I was interested and, uh, I would, you know, I would always enjoy hearing about it. And, um, 
at the same time, you know, I was doing, I was doing these other, my, this other pursuit and, uh, kind of a long story, but just to summarize it, you know, I, I didn't really feel like I was, uh, I was, I was obtaining what I was seeking. And so then, um, I asked my uncle who was helping me with that, with the, you know, the traditional style fasting. At one point I said, well, you know, I, I shared with him that I didn't, I didn't feel like I was, I was, uh, achieving the results that I wanted. Well, he said, the reason why you're not getting what you want, he said, is because you're not focused. You're not focused. You're not, uh, you have to really be more specific or more, more refined in your pursuit. Identify what it is that you want and then ask God for that. And you'll receive that. And so then I thought, well, that's a really good advice. So then I specifically began to think about that and then i i realized what i really wanted what to find was this uh this path this road of life and in the in the our local uh spiritual heritage they they speak of this uh this is they call it the chankuluta they call it the red road the red road and uh, which is the path that god has has put down for mankind to follow and so this is what i specifically was asking for during this particular time when I was out fasting, not too far from where I'm sitting right here, just, just uh, several miles away. It's on a, it's a, it's a, it's a butte. It's a hill, high hill, has kind of like a commanding, uh, commanding situation here in, in, in the topography. And so um, that was really, really tough for me because it was, it was very hot and, you know, of course, no food and no water, four days and four nights. And when I completed that, I, I felt I felt like I had really not achieved what I wanted at all. But um, my Baha'i friends, who uh, I you know I kept in touch with, uh, shortly after that they came over to my place and uh, and they informed me that they would be leaving the area, moving away from the area, and they asked me if I. They asked me, you know, they told me that, well, Kevin, you've been, you know, you've been investigating the Baha'i faith and you know, you know, who this about the central figures, you know, Baha'u'llah uh, and, and the Bab, of course, his forerunner. And you know about the covenant, you know, how Abdul Baha is the center of the covenant and you know the laws. And I said, yeah, 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 you explain those to me. And they said, well, um, <laughs> I exp- uh, they said, uh, well, um, you know, Kevin, you know, you should actually uh, become a Baha'i. And I said, I said, well, yeah, I should. Uh, and and how do you do that? Did you know that was an option until that point? Uh, not really. No, no. Uh, and <laughs> they said, well, um, uh, I said, well, how do you do that? I mean, what do you mean? How do you do that? Well, in the U.S., you know, they just have this. Um, it's like an administrative uh, procedure where you sign a, a declaration card. And then I said, well, if you sign a declaration card what does that mean oh they said well that just means that you identify yourself with the baha'i community and then i said oh you mean there's a community <laughs> they said oh yeah there, there's baha'is <laughs> they said but they're just not here <laughs> they're just not here but they, they yeah you know, i think at that time in you know in the 70s i think that maybe the closest baha'i community was maybe uh well maybe regina saskatchewan or maybe Maybe uh, Minneapolis or Denver, you know, those are all places that are like, well, 400 miles away. Denver's a little further. So, yeah, there were no real, you know, there's no 
there's no Baha'i communities around the area. He said, oh, yeah, there's communities, but they're, they're all over, but they're just not here. And I said, yeah, yeah, well, I, I like that. But I said, there's one thing I'd like to also find out. I said, "Do uh, uh, what about prayers? Do Baha'is have prayers? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, we forgot to give you a prayer book. And then they, my friend fished around <laughs> and he, he, gave me a, uh, he handed me a prayer book. So I, got, I grabbed hold of that prayer book. And then I opened it, just kind of arbitrarily opened it up. And I turned to the uh, one of the prayers revealed by Abdu'l-Bahá from the, from the tablets of the divine plan. The prayers I turned to is specifically the one for the central states, which is this area where I, I live is categorized as one of the central states. And and so I turned to that prayer, and then I started reading it right there on the spot. And I, as I read it, it says, um, uh, O Lord, my God, praise and thanksgiving be unto thee, for thou hast guided me to the highway of the kingdom, suffered me to walk in the straight and far-stretching path. So as, when I read those words, of course, that's not the whole prayer. It's, it's very, it's beautiful. It's a long prayer, and it talks about this, this journey that we're, that we, we set upon this, this path, the spirit, straight and far-stretching path, highway of the kingdom. But then when I, as I read that, I realized that everything there was exactly what I had been asking. And, you know, suffering, you know, suffered for in the, in my pursuit. Yeah. So mm, it was like, it was like Abdu'l-Bahá wrote that tablet to you. Yeah. I felt like it was speaking directly to me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So what were some of the other spiritual teachings and principles of the Baha'i faith that you felt connected or that you resonated with? The first thing that I really liked about it was uh, the the fast, because even before as a Baha'i, you know, when I'd see my Baha'i friends, there, the, this family that I mentioned, uh, you know, I remember several times I'd, I'd, uh, they would talk about the fast, and then I would ask them about that. And then I, I, I think for like a couple of years before actually becoming a Baha'i, I did participate in the fast. I would enjoy that. But the, yeah, but just to get back to your question, I, 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 I like everything about it. I think one of the main things that I really enjoy about Baha'i faith is that, um, is, is that it's all inclusive. It's all inclusive. You know, uh, um, I don't think I've got the quote exactly memorized, but, uh, in the greetings, Baha'u'llah says, Unto the cities of all nations, he has sent his messengers. We know, referring to God, he has sent his messengers whom he hath commissioned to announce uh, the glad tidings of the paradise, paradise of his good pleasure, to draw the nigh into the haven of abiding security, the seat of eternal holiness and transcendent glory. So um, I really like that. And of course, there's so many, there's innumerable other passages that that uh, that uh, accentuate that theme and reiterate that theme that um, really this whole process of divine revelation has always embraced and enveloped all of man, all segments of mankind throughout time and that all peoples have received you know divine bestowals in the form of you know the social laws you know spiritual laws and then of course uh, prophecies all the peoples of the world are anticipating no day of fulfillment. What a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I say. <laughs> so to bring our listeners up to speed, so far we've learned about your life on the reservation and Standing Rock, the political and social conditions that prohibited you from observing 
your indigenous practices and and how a spiritual quest led you to becoming a Baha'i in the late 70s. So you're a Lakota man, a Baha'i, and you're also an indigenous hoop dancer who's traveled the world sharing your gift and your teachings. Could you share a bit about what hoop dancing is for those of us who may not be aware? Well, first of all, just between you and me, you know, I don't consider myself really um, anything in particular, especially, you know, I, I just, I just look at myself as a world citizen, you know, but, uh, but uh, basically um, about the time that I became a Baha'i, that's when I, uh, I was kind of gifted or somehow was blessed with this, uh, uh, with this uh, hoop dance. And it, it is a traditional uh, practice. It's a choreographed prayer. And I recently was visiting with an elder, very well-known elder here. And uh, in his day, in his youth, he was he was a very well-known hoop dancer. So then I, I asked him, I said, I asked him, uh, where did you get this dance from? Where is this dance from? And then he just said, well, he says, this dance comes from out in the universe. It comes from the same place where we all come from. You know, the world of light or the world of truth or reality, we, the place we all come from. And then he said, uh, he said, he told me specifically that I was really blessed because I get to do a lot of um, presentations for children. So then he said that these children recall their origin. They, you know, that they really, they come from that world. You know, they, they haven't forgotten that. And they live in that world. He said, so that's that's good, you know, you can reinforce them and promote them and that, you know, to keep that, that light, that reality alive within themselves. But he says, many adults have forgotten this and are unaware. But he said, he, he said, through this dance, you can even wake them up, wake them up and bring them back into the world of reality, world of light. So that's what it is. It, it's not a... Um, I think in the, in, I, I just say the dominant culture, immigrant culture, whatever, I think they, they use this, um, this, um, uh, what do they call it? It's, it's a, um, it, it's, it, it's a view that, that it's a view that, um, of a false dichotomy. And that is like the arts are usually put in the, in the category of entertainment. Whereas I think from an indigenous perspective, it's totally not that at all. Is that the, uh, you know, like if you, if you use the arts as entertainment, then you, you use it as an escape, you know, like you lead a stressful life. Or let's just say hypothetically, we lead a stressful life and so much, um, so much pressure. So we want to escape from that. So then we use the arts like music or whatever to, to escape that, that, that our reality, everyday reality. But, for I think for indigenous cultures, we use the arts for the exact opposite. We use them to connect to reality, to connect with, with, with that which is real, which is good, which is holy, which is beautiful, which is has continuity and has um, has has permanence the, 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 in the world of spirit. We use the arts to connect with that. Wow, I'm so inspired. I wish the rest of the world could learn from from these teachings. And this perspective, could you walk us through what your school presentations look like? Well, you know what I do is I um, I always start with uh, 
some kind of a song to uh, uh, show my respect, to acknowledge all of them as, you know, since those are my hosts, I don't live down there in Rapid City, but, you know, those kids do. So then that's really a, a good formality to observe is to, you know, like, is to show respect, courtesy, and acknowledgement to your host. And so I did that. And like yesterday, what I did was the, uh, I did this, uh, this song. They always call it the flag song or the national anthem, the Lakota national anthem, which uh, I mentioned to the kids yesterday. That was a song that was composed by uh, a gentleman named Ellis Chips over there in Rapid City back in the early 50s, I think it was. And, uh, and I mentioned that he was such a genius composer when he made that song because the song says, Tunkashi uh, Layapi Tawapaha. And so uh, a lot of people think that means the U.S. flag, and I think they could be right. But see, this, this, you heard that word in there, Tunkashila. Tunkashila means uh, the one that they turn to, that they have for a grandfather, which it can mean grandfather, or it can, it, and, but it also can mean, to me, it means Baha'u'llah. I already mentioned that to you before. And then Tawapaha means, uh, means his emblem, his standard. His standard says, Tunkashi Lapi Tawapaha, Uihanke Shnehe Najik, that will stand forever. It will stand throughout time and it will, it will never, it will always endure. And then it says, Uihanke Shnehe Najinta, Yochlata Oyate Wichichakinta, and beneath it, all the nations shall flourish and grow. You know, shall develop and prosper. And at the end, it says, "Heecha, wana lechamo." And so, at the end, this this really refers to the fact that it says that. And so, therefore, because of this, I myself, I shall arise, and I shall serve. Wow, it sounds incredibly powerful. So, what happens next? So, yeah, then, then I just sing, I just uh, play I play a little bit of the melody on the flute, then I sing it for them. Yesterday I did an eagle song for them. That's their uh, at that little school there in, in Rapid City. That's their uh, that's their school emblem is the eagle. So then I did an eagle song, and I you know I just shared with them the fact that you know the 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 the, the eagle feather you know throughout North America the eagle is is really a, a ubiquitous uh, symbol. You know, as long as people have lived on this continent, the eagle has been the uh, the most important symbol of the people. And so that the eagle represents the ascendant nature of the human spirit. And so then the, the feathers represent virtues. And so the, the for the eagle itself, you know, the, the feather is instrumentality that enables the wings to, to have lift and to p- propel the eagle skyward. And that for you and I as eagles, you know, eagles being, uh, in a sense, representational or symbolic of the ascendant nature of the human spirit, that we're all born, we come into this world with a full set of feathers. We all have all the virtues. And then, then yesterday I had them, you know, start to name virtues. And pretty soon they found out that you know, they can actually name hundreds of virtues, you know, everybody. But uh, but anyway, uh, that, so we're all coming to this world with all these virtues. But then I said, the only thing that will enable those 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 uh, those feathers or those vir- those virtues to become activated is when we use them in service, we use them in service to our you know our families, our communities, and so forth. 
And then once we do that, then there's no limit to how high we can soar on these, you know, wings of knowledge and understanding and love. And so that, you know, that's a beautiful metaphor. I just dedicated the song to them like that. And so, yeah, that's basically what I do. So in other words, even though, um, even though it might outwardly seem that I'm doing a, a cultural program, I'm very careful to, um, to, to, I don't really say it to the kids, but I'm very careful to uh, realize that, you know, these are traditional arts or folk arts, you know, and, and every culture has them, you know, like there's Persians or Arabs or Chinese, it doesn't matter. But the, the, what folk arts are, they're simply expressions that come down through the generations and over time they're perfected or they, they reach a stage where they become very representational of universal um, uh, human traits, you know, like we all have this this love and attraction towards beauty, towards harmony, balance, symmetry. But what's really cool about folk art is that no matter where you go on the planet, they have validity. So people appreciate it because they say, you know, just it really appeals to people because they say, yes, this this really appeals because these are these are things that really. Um, uh, give validity to who we are as human beings. You know, They're kind of like universal, uh, universal truths. Yeah, yeah, universal. So that's, that's what I like to do is just uh, transcend, you know, the tribal specific or cultural specific uh, themes and just hit on universal themes. So you've traveled the world, sharing sharing your art and and your spiritual beliefs, dance, flute, storytelling. What what motivates you to continue this this practice? Oh, it's it's just um, you know th- there's still a lot of interest in it, and um, you know I, I feel good, I feel you know active, and and um, uh, let's see now. So I, I've got quite a few things going on. Mostly, I just do I, I do things in the schools around here because. Uh, uh, um, it's, it's just, it's just the a path of life that kind of chose me. But, um, uh, I, I'll just, I always say, you know, that's my motto. Just hoop till you droop. Just keep on going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That should be the title of this, of this podcast. Yeah. Hoop till you droop. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I know you have a lot of projects on the go. I recently found a GoFundMe campaign that you'd put together to help continue your trips in going into these schools. Could you share a bit, a bit more about that and also any other projects that you have on the horizon? Well, it's, it's just the fact that in um, the reason why is that in the current uh, socio-political economic climate in the United States, that there's a, there's a, a, a lack of attention to, you know, like uh, out, people out this way, you know, in the more of the rural or non-urban setting. And so uh, there's a cutback, and you know, especially in the arts uh, out in this area. So then I, I just thought, well, you know, maybe I can I can uh, get a little bit of help from the outside to continue what I'm doing. So it's really good. I really really appreciate all the support. It's fantastic. How do people find you? Uh, they can go to my website, kevinlock.com. I've got you know I've got links there and promo materials and scheduling information. And uh, yeah, that would be fantastic. And your book that just came out as well. Could you share a little bit about what inspired these memoirs? Yeah, well, um, this was something that was, uh, somebody approached me through the, uh, the Baha'i Publishing Trust here in the United States about doing, doing some memoirs. And so I 
collaborated with a couple of ladies who are really fantastic because, um, you know, I, 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 I guess, you know, I just see things from my own limited perspective, but they were able to, you know, ask questions and, you know, draw out different, uh, different points that I, I don't know if I would have really come up with those on my own. I know I wouldn't have. So I was, I was very thankful for that collaboration, but it simply elaborates on the different themes that you, that you yourself have, 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 I've mentioned in this interview, and so it just develops all these all these various themes, you know, about you know how I became a Baha'i, how I how I you know got onto these different traditions, and all these all these things about this uh, you know walking this path of life so far. You can get it through the Baha'i Publishing Trust or through uh, Amazon or anything that's called a Rising A R I S I N G. Yes, thank you for sharing that, and we will be sure to also include links to the book and your website on the web content that's associated with this podcast episode. I sadly have to bring this interview to a close, Kevin, but I really want to thank you for your time today um, and your contributions to this episode of Cloud9. I personally have learned a lot about your experiences as an Indigenous person and your unique spiritual journey to the faith and the context behind your creative and artistic practices. And I also want to thank you for the artistic contributions and services that you've rendered for the community. Okay, thank you very much. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Baha'iTeachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles.